Welcome to the Modern Art Notes podcast. I'm Tyler Green. This week, Pipilotti Reist. The new museum in New York is presenting Pipilotti Reist Pixel Forest, Reist's first New York survey. The show spans Reist's career from her 1980s single-channel videos to the large environments she's created more recently. The exhibition is curated by Massimiliano Gioni, Margot Norton, and Helga Christofferson, all of the new museum. The show is on view through January 15th next year. Its catalog was published by Faden. Its catalog was published by Faden. Reist, who is based in Zurich, has been the subject of many single artist museum exhibitions, especially in the last half decade. Among the museums to give her shows are the Kunsthaus Zurich, the Liam Samson Museum of Art in Seoul, the Hayward in London, the Wexner in Columbus, MoMA in New York, and the Pompidou in Paris. On the second segment, Mark Speltz discusses his new book, North of Dixie, Civil Rights Photography Beyond the South. It focuses on the civil rights era history of northern and western states between 1938 and 1975, especially through over 100 pictures taken in more than 25 cities. It includes a foreword by Timothy Potts, a preface by Deborah Willis, and was published by Getty Publications. Speltz is a senior historian at American Girl in Madison, Wisconsin. One quick note on my conversation with Pipilotti Reist. When we spoke, my studio microphone was having some issues, and as a result, the only microphone that picked up my voice was my computer microphone. Sorry about that. I don't think it'll take away from your enjoyment of a pretty great conversation. Pipilotti Reist, after the break. The Wexner Center for the Arts at The Ohio State University is the only Midwest venue for Leap Before You Look, Black Mountain College, 1933 to 1957, on view through January 1st. This immersive exhibition spotlights an experimental school and its extraordinary impact on contemporary art, with works by 90 artists including Annie and Joseph Albers, Buckminster Fuller, Jacob and Gwendolyn Knight Lawrence, Robert Rauschenberg, and Cy Twombly, plus a schedule of in-gallery performances. For more information, go to wexarts.org. The Hirshhorn Museum and Sculpture Garden in Washington, D.C. presents the first major U.S. survey of Ragnar Kartensen, hailed by the New York Times as, quote, one of the most celebrated performance artists anywhere. Spellbinding, poignant, and humorous, this unprecedented solo exhibition brings together live endurance theater, immersive video, music, photography, and painting, to introduce U.S. audiences to one of today's most exciting and evolving artists. Now on view at the Hirshhorn, visit hirshhorn.si.edu for more. And we're back. Pipilotti Reist, welcome to the Modern Art Notes podcast. <laughs> welcome. Thank you. Let's start by going back to the mid-1980s when you were in your early 20s. As I understand it, when you were 22, 23 years old, you were working for bands doing stage effects and videos that ran on screens behind their live shows. What kind of music was that? What kind of audience and venue were you making work for? And most of all, what was in those videos? These were Super 8 films in that time and slides and also painting. So before I worked with video and the bands were very different, pop, Kleftsner, not rock, <laughs> emotional stuff. You made paintings and then made slides of them and those were projected behind the bands? Actually, I had a visual ID for every song 
And in some songs, I would only have a colored lights on the singer. In next song, I would project five slides. Then in the other song, particular Super 8 movie. And then the, the background was cardboard painted. So actually, it was like a stage, like a theater stage for that particular concert. So was that the beginning of your interest in making art or was that just a whole nother time and life and world away? I'm always a bit suspicious speaking biographical because in the end we all make up a, a, a serial line of things and it looks very predictable but in the, it was so much more coincidences but to say that caution. Actually, I did not think to be an artist in that time. I thought I want to do rooms where people feel the center and, and feel good. And helping my friends, the music bands, was like a possibility to have a room filled with live music. But actually, I did not treat myself as an independent single artist. I was just one member of a ho of a bigger group attributing to a good evening. When did your interest in making art come about? Was that when you went to school or Actually I went to I studied graphic design and then later I went to do a 2 years course of video to have access to the machines. This was in Basel. This, yeah, this was in Basel, and I started before in Vienna. First in Vienna, I started to to study physics, theoretical physics, and I just by a very crazy mood, I tried to to come into the the academy, and the chance to be accepted was so small. And then when I was accepted, I thought, yeah, I try it. My goal was to visualize philosophical and physical systems in a graphical way. That was my my goal in that time. So in in Basel to apply for the video art class was just that I had a chance to work with video machines. In that time they were big, the cameras, the editing table were heavy and huge and you could not afford them as a single person. I'm aware of many parts of your biography. I was totally unaware that you had studied theoretical physics. Only uh, one one semester, because then I jumped over to the... Is, do you think any of that survives in your work? Do you, does anything from that period, that interest, make it into the art? I hope so. <laughs> I'm still convinced that if we close our eyes, that we can come very close to the physical principles or that our body, who is built up as an organic mass, built up on all the molecules and all the, the gravities and, and, and physical rules, sorry, <laughs> that in the end uh, it has combinations and, and meanings that explain... Yeah, you helped me. <laughs> yeah, I know. The, 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 the... There's something, now that you put it that way, there's something about the work that treats bodies as permeable, as, as 
you know, which, yeah, you see, I didn't take theoretical physics classes, so I'm not very good at talking about it either. <laughs> Permeable, I like your word very much because it's a good, it's a good symbol. So when a human body meets another, there is the permeable quality of the emotional or when we talk to each other that transgresses and influences us. But also, for example, uh, X-rays go through the body. And I'm interested in, in the parallelity of the physical constraints and conditions of our existence and the emotional philosophical one. And I'm sure that in the end, this is extremely linked. And I think you can't be enough esoteric. I think life is even thousand times more esoteric than any esoteric people can display. Well, so, so we have you in the 1980s. You're in Basel. You have access to film editing materials. And you're, you're beginning to, to play around with them and use them. So at this point in Europe, in the, in the mid-1980s, media, and especially television, was primarily a function controlled by, by the state. Did that impact your interest in the medium, either, either then in, in 86, 87, 88, or later on? Yeah, that was clearly an important point. And I also knew that video and TV, per se, was invented by the military forces, only later used for entertainment. And I was clearly aware and also wondering why we are all looking into this box. And on the other side, these monopoles who tell us what to see and what not to see was very obvious in that time before private stations, before the possibility of normal people doing videos were, were given. So you are uh, beginning to make videos in the mid to late 80s. Were you responding and engaging mostly with music culture or were there works of what we would, you know, call fine art that were catching your interest that you wanted to engage with? Both. In, in that time, the teacher in Basel showed us also video art examples. Clearly the one who influenced me was John Jonas the most and so I, I was already aware of that there are great video artists maybe 10 years older or but I did also in that time I didn't thought to become a video artist but uh, I, I, I like the idea that I'm more on the side of the of the normal audience. So when I was cooking something with these technical possibilities, I did feel I'm one of the spectators and uh, it's kind of a self-empowering as a normal spectator, but not yet being as, as a defined artist. What did you like about Joan Jonas's work? The vertical role, the piece of her, that was like an eye opener and to till to the, today i'm extremely interested that people not only look to the content or listen to the content of a medium but also going back and forth and being aware that this is 
plastic, this is a glass screen or a membrane in the speaker. So that interested me a lot to always fall back or make the, the consumer falling back to the physical moment. It's amazing to me and maybe bad of me. We've gone 10 minutes here without discussing color. Oh, no. <laughs> Joan, you, the, the video works you would have started seeing, especially Joan Jonas, in the mid-80s where, of course, all black and white. Was the beginning of your interest in color, I don't know if this is the right phrase, but a reaction against so much video art at that time in history, having been mostly or only black and white? Actually, I don't know anymore. Could be. I just remember that, that there was one teacher in the video class. He said, you are not allowed to use full saturated colors. <laughs> and, and I remember that I, I didn't like him as a person. That made me really think I should useful saturated colors no <laughs> really i mean is that kind of true no, one uh, one teacher i really loved and the other was like a very sorry to be nasty narcissistic mm, yeah. <laughs> a narcissistic artist he was the narcissist was the one who said not full saturated colors and till today the not colorful often seems to me like a pretending or like a coverage, always saying, oh, my deep, uh, my deepest qualities are inside. I don't have to show off with colors. And it's, it's also a class thing that strong colors are often linked, not only in art, but in design and in our Western societies with proletariat, with gypsies, and of course with the advertisement. So in a way that they have taken away the colors from a normal, intelligent person. Were there examples of artists who used color in interesting ways in art history, whether in the 20th century or in the 17th century? that interest you or interested you or was most of your pathway to color? Like an auntie? No. <laughs> no, of course, there are beautiful works in color. And I was also aware that in old arts, like in the churches, where our parents always forced us to go and see all the artworks, that these colors have been stronger when they were made and then faded by time, and, and in new works, I'm, I was very interested in comics, in films, and in animation films. Of course, Heinz Edelmann, who did uh, Yellow Submarine, or when you refer to music films, so these were things I knew, appreciated. I have found myself, when talking about your work with people while the show is up in New York, talking about fauvism and Matisse and Andre Durand and George Brock and, and fauvism of the early 20th century. Was fauvism ever of interest to you? Yeah. Of course, it had a complete different meaning in that time as being avant-garde and new and different and breaking down fixed structures. But I agree that, that uh, 
using the wild, surrealistic, colorful art is more a, a display of the inner than a replica of the reality, which is always much more pittoresque and sharp and more fauve. <laughs> no, I think they would have liked that description. <laughs> Because, you know, at the time, Paris was a gray, you know, was a dark colored, you know, a gray and brown, a city of grays and browns. And... Yeah, and that, yeah, but that it was a more practical reasons also of, of, of the possibilities of cleaning and all the, the, the gray from the smoke, from all the heating, the coals, the wood. And they had not so good cleaning machines as we have now and not so much money to re redo it. So color is so important to you that in 2009, 2010-ish, you made a whole movie about it, and it's called Pepperminta. It is not a part of the new museum show, which is too bad. So for our purposes here, let me describe it to listeners as, as a buddy film with a notably pro-feminist and pro-color plot. I absolutely loved it. I still love it. It's one of my, my favorite things. For me, Pepperminta is your mid-career artist statement, a kind of summary of everything you've done in the previous 15 or so years to that point. Is that kind of a fair way of thinking about the film? Actually, it was also a try to go to a complete different world, to a different viewing ritual. So that I would not call it like a center of my work. I would only call it a, a try uh, or a jump out into... A different context. Did it work? Depends on what the criteria is. If what what means working, I got got some prices. In that sense, it worked. <laughs> I had not many visitors. In that sense, it didn't work. And I would like to do half of the film differently. So then, in my sense, it didn't work. Ah, what what would you do differently? I would either make a, a more stringent story or abandon it completely. It was something in between. I did not completely follow the knowledge and the rules of the, of the possible narratives. On one side and on the other side, I did not behave as, as uh, uncompromising as I, I'm allowing me in, in the museum's context. I think other artists such as Shireen Nishat, who have made both art for the gallery context and the big screen context, have found some of those same things. One of the, when I, when I saw the film for the first time, I thought, well, I thought a bunch of things about it, but one of them was that it felt to me like a response in some ways to, to Joseph Boys and his gray suit and um, and his pretentiousness and all of that. Are you interested in boys in that way? Yeah, I would not call him completely pretentious. <laughs> no. But he could uh, be. <laughs> I think a bit, of course, but that's maybe not only his fault that it became that way. It was also the way how he was conceived and uh, treated he made some very good works and influenced a lot of people and also gave some meaning to to a whole generation. 
Yeah, it interests me, but I'm not. I, I would, if I could choose, can I have a original painting of a yellow submarine or a or a drawing of boys? I would take the one of Heinz Edelmann, if you don't blame me. Yeah. So in a, maybe in a, in a in a way, in a, a little bit of a way, you are consciously being a little bit of an anti-Joseph Boys in some of your interests and approaches. No, I cannot say. No, I would not completely sign that. I'm not anti him, but I like also the the whole mood around his work, and he empowered a lot of people with it, with with his work. But as you yourself said, uh, it can also become too self-indulgent, and and you you create an aura, and then but actually. Like in many, most of the works, the work is only finished in you giving a meaning to the work. And for some people, uh, it had a big meaning, so I would not try to take it away. One of the things that's in both Pepperminta and in a lot of your work of the last 20 years has been the way the camera is used. It's always moving, it always feels handheld, as if you... Pipilotti Reese, the artist, is moving the camera around a field the way like, like a painter would move a brush around. First up, is, are, are you the one who holds the camera in most of your work, or is somebody else holding the camera and you're directing them? I'm mostly doing the camera myself. In case of Pepperminta, it was Pierre Menel, who knew my style since a long time. We have collaborated whenever I could afford him. But normally I'm I'm doing my camera myself, and either I work on sticks and have to do the same take like hundred times to avoid the trembling or how you call it in English, shaking. And then in recent years, I work with high-speed cameras that allow me to do a, a, a quick move, and in the end, if I slow it down and recalculate it with software to have more frames, then the the movement is soft, which I I, I aim to. But the camera is, is like all the other technical apparatus. We have always a, only a bad copy of our body. So the camera, in a way, is a bad copy of our eye, blood-driven machine. And I wanted always to treat it that way, that the body and the machines are not separated. They are invented by other bodies and try to help help us. Like a computer is in a way an extension of a brain or or a line. Now when we talk on, Sky, on Skype, these machines helping us because our arms are not that far to reach over the ocean. So it, it sounds like it's crucially important to you that you be the one who holds the camera because it's just a part of authorship. No. <laughs> I, could, I could also let somebody else do the camera, but that would mean this person would have to be with me like all the time and we even would have to do more takes than I do myself. So it's 
not authorship, it's more also control, experience, it's a dance. I have some uh, very esoteric uh, ideas of doing camera, like when I do camera, I always talk with my grandmother and I show her the world. That helps me, for example, to be as calm as possible. I said, look here, I show you. I show. It's, it's kind of, uh, it's more dancing. That, 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 that prompts me to ask, is the grandmother figure in Pepperminta your grandmother? Yes, but of course, uh, <laughs> she's not anymore alive, alive, but she symbols my grandmother. Ah, did your grandmother wear a pink hat? <laughs> the, the the grandmother figure in Pepperminta, I should I should say for listeners, wears a pink hat throughout the throughout the film. <laughs> oh, she also does things I w- wished my grandmother mother would have been able to. So, in addition to 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 this extraordinary color in your work and the way. A, a camera moves through your work. Um, another one of the really distinctive things in your art is your interest in the body, which seems. Sorry. Can we quickly stop and, uh, and go later to the body? And I can I ask you back? Sure, sure. Stay with the color. As you now worked uh, on uh, on your book about this groundbreaking photographer and black and white. Why, or what is your opinion? when you see art and the difference between art that uses color and and the more black and white art what is your conclusions ah so for listeners who who may not know i'm writing a book about carlton watkins the the 19th century american artist and photographer one of the things that and i and i thought this a lot going through your show is that when something's in black and white and in shades of black and shades of white. Shades and tones are very much restricted to an area. They outline shapes and things that exist. They're very set and fixed, and they're just what they are, period, full stop. And in your work, for example, color can have any value, any register, any brightness, any volume, if you will, you want it to have. You give, you use color independent, kind of like the Fauves did, really, which is why I asked about Fauvism. You use color as a thing that can be as big or small or booming or as quiet as you want it to be, regardless of whether or not a flower or a nipple or water actually is that exact color which is, you know, freeing. You know, it's like the hot air balloon flying above the earth. It's, it's liberating. And I think that sense of liberation is in a lot of your work. I mean, it's certainly it's what Peppermint is about, but it's also, it's in, it's in other of your work. I mean, pickle porno, for example, color is kind of ecstatic and freeing. And, but why do you think when, when we meet people in, 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 in the art world or intellectuals, why... Is there such a big fear of color, do you think? Or is that too easy said? Uh, no, I think, I, think it's, I think you got at it earlier when you said that we think of color as being easy and facile and related to advertising and 
and kind of more bourgeois appeals to to simpleness and, and so say, it's not simple it can be so many things and it's also dangerous you fall into it and color can swallow you and is like music it's super emotional it's hard to get it to be to stay distant it's it's why political revolutions such as the orange revolution in ukraine are eager to associate themselves with a color right it can be or red <laughs> yeah or red yeah even more historically laden yeah you know in, a, in 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 the context of so much of 20th century art after fauvism color is something that had to be controlled that had to fit within a theory such as joseph albers's kind of very set ideas about how color had to relate to other color and and then especially kind of within i mean there's a certain strain of post world war 2 european art that just doesn't believe in color i mean it took it took gerhard richter decades to get to color it anselm kiefer still really hasn't gotten there i i mean you've kind of brought it back you know there are um, many artists working on that <laughs> Well, there are now, but in, you know, you know, in 1970s New York, black and white was the thing. In 1980s Europe, there just wasn't anywhere near as much color as there, there, there is in your work, even your earliest work. Yeah, and as uh, David Batchelor says, black and white is very much linked with language, written language. And as you said, it's, it, it's more defining. You see a, a portion in the image, black and white is what it is and it has this line who divides the yes to the no and you know i think you made this link early in your career but it's easy or easier to link color with popular music than it is to link black and white with popular music i mean pickle like take pickle porno for example pickle porno builds to an orgasmic climax and pop music songs you know four minute pop music songs have done that since the beginning of pop music. It's a dramaturgy of a song often. It goes also in in chorus and little hills and then building up. But you're right, I never, never, or it was not that clear to me that the song is in a way very much like sexual encounter climax hillybilly. Oh, really? Because I, I mean, one of my questions I had to ask you, I, I had typed to ask you about pickle porno, was whether you consciously, you know, so it's, pickle porno is about six and a half minutes long, which is about the, the length of a pop song. And I, the question I typed was whether to ask you if that was your attempt at making a video art pop song. No. I'm sorry. And it, it was 12 minutes, but... You know, maybe the, the the link is there, but I was not conscious. But this length often is also the the span of concentration, either in bed or watching. <laughs> <So>. <laughs> but also in the end, probably has a, a clear biological clock thing, concentration capability of the sugar level in our brain and I'm sure there are links we could find out. There are a couple of your works, Pepperminta and Ever is Overall, 
in which the foil, the bad guy, or the potential bad guy, is a, a police officer. Police officers are not known for their colorful outfits, you know, you, you know, maybe boring blue. Are you aware of having used police officers a few times in, in, in that kind of bad guy way? And why do you do it? Speaking of average overall there, I give the police person a very friendly part. Eventually. I mean, you know, at, at the beginning, we aren't sure how that's going to go. <laughs> the viewer isn't sure how that's going to go. <laughs> and also in uh, Peppermint, the police is beaten with strawberries, so they don't uh, look very dangerous. No, but they still represent authority until the moment they don't. Yeah, they are symbol for rules, but... but more a general symbol than a symbol for police person themselves. I'm also grateful and I like I like police people a lot. I'm I'm grateful that they are there, that they protect us from each other and help us to live in peace. But for me they were more uh, symbol for rules in generals. Many of them we don't question, we don't have the time to question all the rules of the daily life. And, but I'm, of course, agreeing that there have to be some common base rules to come along with each other. So did you think I would, that these symbols were anti, anti-police per se? No, no, no. I, 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 no, I think they were metaphors. I mean, I think, I, think that they, I, I think that they were a reference to authority and to especially the artistic straining against rules and authority. And I think that that's how, you know, I, I think in Pepperminta that's clearest because, you know, the color espousers win. <laughs> it gets even more complicated in my case because I'm collecting uniforms, which sounds a bit the contrary of the free movement or how you call it, like the not being bound, uh, uh, bonded my guest is Pipilotti Reist. We'll be right back after a break. It is easier than ever to explore art historical texts from the comfort of your home with the Getty Research Portal. This online catalog provides free access to books and journals from libraries and museums all over the world, including new editions such as the Art Institute of Chicago's Ryerson and Burnham Libraries, the Herzog August Bibliothèque in Wolfenbüttel, and the Warburg Institute Library in London, resulting in over 100,000 volumes available. To explore the Getty Research Portal, visit portal.getty.edu. Realist, surrealist, hippie, punk, icon, Bruce Connor, it's all true, is on view now at the San Francisco Museum of Modern Art. Connor, a famous prankster and master of multimedia, was a visionary of San Francisco's art scene, but could not be defined by any one movement. Experience over 250 works from this provocative artist's incredible output, including film, assemblages, paintings, photograms, and more. Get tickets at sfmoma.org. The Hammer Museum in Los Angeles presents In Real Life, 100 Days of Film and Performance. Now through January, head to the Hammer to see four month-long film exhibitions, public rehearsals in the museum's courtyard, and 15 weekends of performances by artists including Trajal Harrell, Dan Levinson, Mutant Salon, Jennifer Moon and Laub, Allison O'Daniel, 
Janine Olison, Laura Schnitger, Simon Lee, Simon Lung, and more. The four month-long film exhibitions include seven short films examining crisis and technology from Artists Film International, Echo, the videos of One Otrix, Point, Never, and related works, How to Love a Watermelon Woman, featuring the films of Cheryl Dunier, and The Workshop Years, Black British Film and Video after 1981. Find a schedule and details for In Real Life at hammer.ucla.edu. Hammer Museum, free for good. And now back to my conversation with Pippa Lottie Reist. Well, we have to talk a little more about Ever is Overall, which is, you know, uh, on the very shortest list of the greatest works of, of video art. We talked about the, 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 the police officer and the, the role the police officer plays. Let me start by asking you about the flower. The name of the flower that's on the right-hand screen, if you will, is the Red Hot Poker. It's a flower native to Africa and it often grows to about the size of a small human, which is what we, we see in the film. Why that flower? Why did you choose that flower? I found this flower in France. In Latin, it's called Knifofia, as you said, red hot poker. And I filmed the flower and was so impressed that these long stems holding the wind and how they were made and for me became a symbol how strong they are, even if they are only cells, organic cells filled with water. And that was like uh, a symbol for the whole action later, that weak is not weak. Also, power doesn't have to be metal like a car. Power can be, can come in, different shapes and materials. It sounds like your science background intersecting with your art background. <laughs> or you can you also combine the, or co uh, compare these flowers to big, huge skyscrapers. We are still not capable as humans today to build skyscrapers that are as strong as such plants are in relation to their size. So the protagonist in Ever is Overall uses her, her, her flower, if you will, to smash parked car windows. Uh, I love it. Everybody loves it when, you know, 50 people are sitting there watching the video together. Everybody always reacts to that moment. Everybody looks at each other. Everybody laughs. It's a moment of great pleasure. At the risk of asking um, a really stupid question, why did smashing parked car windows interest you? <laughs> I have three different stories. <laughs> <laughs> Good. <laughs> no, it was important that that she smashes them and she pretending that she does that every day, not how she did it. This was Silvana Chesky. She's a filmmaker herself. How she does it is half the rent. That not doing it in a ag aggressive or in a criminal way but just it could uh, with the intention it could be like this in a way it's like a fairy tale and for me it was an easy uh, visual possibility to to show such a distorted action 
then 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 there was different reason. One reason also was I had a carte blanche for a newspaper and worked hard to to do it. What it's called do the newspaper like German you do. It's a magazine about art. And when I delivered it in, the chief did not accept my cover page. The cover page was a older lady. And he said, oh, we won't sell enough. And in that, that moment, I had the, the wish to smash his car. <laughs> and in the evening, I thought, no, he's not worth to do that. But it brought me to the ID. And... Yeah, and then, the, like the, the other part of the script is that that she should not do it aggress- aggressively because the the car is just a a shitty piece of metal and and glass and always I was wondering why such an object can become object of such an object of desire and. A symbol and often even more important than your own kid or your your friends or so it had different levels that came together in in that work that's that's one of the reasons that's interesting is we the audience is surprised when she smashes the first car window and we are maybe not on her side you will you know we might think that's goodness that's horrible but by the time she gets to the last car which is a jaguar i think a luxury car and a traditional object of desire we are we are all for it yeah yeah we're like nail that thing (laughs) yeah yeah i realized that behaving also and was and i also saw the, the bodies of the visitors of the watchers they they suddenly stand up and they br- breathe in more. I could realize that. It's like <gasps> relieving because so so millions of times we have to take a step back because a car comes or the car has just such a unspoken power or a, a free way given to the car. And we as a vulnerable wet bodies always uh, stand on the second line. The next kind of thing in your work I wanted to ask about, and I'm not asking any specific questions about feminism in your work because I, I think it's in kind of everything we've been talking about. But the, the, the next thing I wanted to talk about was the Catholic and and biblical references that run through a lot of your work. And maybe the way into that is, is I noticed that in 2008, you filled out a questionnaire for Freeze Magazine in which you were asked what the first work of art that really mattered to you was. Do you have any memory of what you answered? <laughs> the first work that mattered to me? No, I forgot. What did I uh, answer? You answered the Basilica de Santa Maria della Salute. Ah, the which is a Marian shrine full of Marian, you know, of of symbols of the cult of Mary. The great dome of the church is her crown. It's a a breast-like form which references Mary's life-giving charity. 
the cavernous interior of the church has traditionally been read as being symbolic of Mary's womb, and so on. Are you interested in 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 the Mary story? Yeah, interests me a lot, but not in a religious, more in a psychological. It's more the, it's the symbol of the mother of where we come from, where we would like to hide again. And taking religion as a collective psychosis, it always has a healing or a, a form-giving. Sustaining, maybe? Yeah. So when there are a lot of nipples in your work, is one way as a viewer that we might consider those nipples as, as life-giving, sustaining, providing, rather than merely sexual? It's both. I mean, I'm still don't know why this is so linked to each other. And I always try to see the breasts also very objective, just as a piece of fat. And often I would like to have it on my back. So it would, it would be easier to walk and run. And then when you lay and when you sit in a chair, you would have always a comfortable back seat. <laughs> So I, I often can see the, the body not in an emotional, sexual way, but just as a, a crazy invention. And I try to imagine that how the body also could lo look, how it would be if we would have our sexual organs, for example, on the shoulder or... There's something of that in the history of European art. I mean you know, in, in Hieronymus Bosch or something where he puts body parts in wrong places. Often in early Catholic painting, painters, you know, would kind of put Mary's breast, say in an allegory of charity, would put her breast in the wrong place slightly. <laughs> there was a certain mutability there. You you made work to be shown in in Catholic spaces a number of times. It's, it's the kind of space that we really just don't have in the United States, either in terms of the history of the space or what it means or meant. You have a lot of churches, don't you? We do. Historical, you mean. So. Yeah, but, there's, but, but you know, first, they're not as old. They aren't weighted with as much of our history, except for maybe in one or two parts of the country. But also in Europe, they often seem, they pretend to be older than they are. They often were, when they were built, already classicistic or re referencing to another time. And we, we just let you American believe that <laughs> this is here since ever. <laughs> is there a difference for you in showing work in a church and in a museum? It depends more if this church is also not used as a church if the people who go to the church already know, now we see art, if they are prepared, or if it's just people who, who did not ask for an artwork. So that is for me the bigger difference, the ritual of going there. So depends on which church you mean. But it is a similarity from churches and museums. It's clearly both places where people jump out of their daily life and give themselves a, a time to reflect. Or, and before it was the, 
the praying, the sitting down was similar to some rituals we now have when we go to uh, museums. One of the, the tools in your toolkit is making people look up, Ma making people who are looking at your art either look up high on a wall, but especially onto a ceiling. Why, why is that? Why, why do you like that? Why that move? If I have the chance to give the people a laying possibility, then I'm interested to free them from gravity. And they can also realize if they see things differently when they don't have to fight against gravity all the time. That's one side. And the other is we are so much focusing always on horizontal in our rooms, in our civilization, in constructions, and the ceilings are completely neglected. In churches, they were important of meaning the spirit of the, the brain versus the, the flesh and the body, sinful body and the innocent spirit, which is a, a lie in itself. But I also... In my home, I have my, the, the TV on the ceiling. It's just a neglected space. And, and, and it, it means the spirit. It means the imagination. It means going away from the world, going away from, from or meet at least the possibilities to, es to escape. It has an escapistic symbolism in itself, per se. I have to ask the art nerd question. Did Tiepolo and Tiepolo's work have any influence on your interest either in in the ceiling or in the shapes of, you know, the screens onto which you project things on the ceilings, if you know what I mean? Yo, I hope he has. <laughs> <laughs> it's not me to judge that. But they had a, a probably similar uh, intentions also to 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 give the visitor or the viewer, the idea that there are things bigger than we, we self. There are things uh, that help us to come out, that help us to jump out of our daily problems. And the idea that if we look up together in a big room, that these sum of the people is more than the sum. So that I'm sure they had the similar intentions. Let me ask a quick question about Sip My Ocean before before getting my last question. Is is that an artwork as much about asexual reproduction, water and ocean as semiotic fluid as, as it is anything else? Is that kind of another linking of your maybe interest in science and your interest in art and color? I'm asking that terribly, but maybe you get what I'm going at. You know, no, it's not terribly, not at all. But also there has different entrances to answer. From the text of the song by Chris Isaac, who speaks about the wish not to fall in love anymore, is also the, the big wish we, we have the whole life to be synchroned with the other. The projections mirrored in the corner give calm, calms us down because we always know when it moves to the right, the other moves to the left, and our wish to be completely in sync with the other. And sometimes it, it happens very sh for five minutes in a conversation or in, 
in kissing or dancing or or uh, understanding the other com- completely. Sometimes it it functions. It's not asexual at all. But it is a but it is a oneness that leads to something. It is a pursuit of a oneness that leads to something larger. Nicely said. <laughs> Actually, would I think the interview would be much better if you would. <laughs> no, are you kidding? You keep saying you keep saying things that make me wish I knew how to phrase things that way over and over again. Well, finally, Beyonce rather brazenly ripped off "Ever Is Overall" in her video "Hold Up" earlier this year. How do you feel about that? Yeah, I was smiling when I saw it, but I'm not sure if she's aware. Probably was one person of her crew who brought this as his script, and so I don't treat it as she's ripping me off personally. It was just the crew. I I did not understand why they did not use the front screens. (laughs) I did use only the side screens because I couldn't afford the front screens. But I was wondering why they stick so close to the original. That, that, that didn't make sense to me. By the front screens, you mean the side windows, not the windshield? Windshield, yeah. So I can repeat it. I was wondering why they not use the windshield or why they not try to make it more different. So... But to be, in a way, I, I was, it's adaption or how you call it? Yeah, yeah, yeah. That's, that's what you call it. Yeah, and, and she, but she's a, a, a great artist. I admire her way and what she did. So in a way, it's also very complimenting me. Oh, yeah. And on the other side, it would have been nice to be con- contacted or, uh, yeah. If you stick so close to the, what what did you think? I, I think I thought what what you thought. I mean, I think that was my, my 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 thought too. Why not? Why not riff on it? Why not add something to it? Why not update it? But but you also said something there I I'd never heard before. Your original idea for the piece was to have the windshield smashed, but but that was just it was going to be too expensive to replace all the windshields. Exactly. And also, uh, so I could already pre-order the side windows, and in the afternoon, all the people had their cars back. (laughs) Did you know the people whose cars they were? Yes. One's my mother's, and also the red lady in in the piece walking away. It's my mother, then my brother. I normally work with people I'm... Either family or friends or people I know. I, I had no, I had no idea. And of course, somebody had to clean up all the glass too. So how about that? <laughs> yeah, <laughs> that's great. Well, Pippa Reese, this has been uh, a lot of fun, a great thrill. I love the work, and thanks so much for speaking with me. Thank you so much for the interest, and I wish you good luck with your book. And I will for sure looking forward to see and read it. The National Museum of Art at Duke University presents Southern Accent, Seeking the American South in Contemporary Art, an exhibition that questions and explores the complex and contested space of the American South. 
this unprecedented exhibition takes on Southern identity as an open-ended question and reframes the way we look at the South in contemporary art. Southern accent encompasses a broad spectrum of media and approaches from both within and outside the region, demonstrating that Southernness is more of a shared sensibility than a consistent culture. Southern Accent includes work by 60 artists focusing on contemporary work from the past 30 years. It includes earlier work dating back to the 1950s as important foundational and historical markers. Opening September 1st at the Nasher Museum of Art at Duke University in Durham, North Carolina. Visit nasher.duke.edu. The Nasher Sculpture Center presents Run for President by artist Catherine Andrews, open through January 8th. The Dallas Morning News calls the show presciently timed and eerily paralleling the circus-esque plotline of the 2016 presidential election. Experience how film props, iconic imagery, and polished steel sculptures create a visual connection between electoral politics, media, and mass spectacle. More information at nashersculpturecenter.org. Welcome back. My next guest is Mark Speltz, a senior historian at American Girl in Madison, Wisconsin. His new book is North of Dixie, Civil Rights Photography Beyond the South. It features over 100 pictures taken in more than 25 cities in the North and West. Mark Speltz, welcome to the Modern Art Notes podcast. Thank you for having me. What drew your attention to the subject, to civil rights-focused photography outside the American South? Well, it all came to me in graduate school about a decade ago. I was studying in Milwaukee, learning about the civil rights struggle in that northern urban city, and there were all these incredible photographs, and I was just blown away by what I was finding. But when I you know, returned to the traditional books on civil rights photography and the, the books about the best-known photographers, there was very little northern material to compare it to. So I couldn't find photos to helped me understand what I was seeing in the streets of Milwaukee. And the books that were national exhibitions, the catalogs, they traditionally brought the North into the picture or focused on pictures of urban unrest, riots, and rebellion. They virtually ignored 10, 20, 30 years of activity in those northern cities before that. So it implied that the movement came north in 65, 66, and then blew up on the urban concrete and fell apart. But there were decades before that were, were not being seen. They were sort of obscured. Well, so why are northern, and for that matter, western narratives typically left out of this visual story? There's many reasons, but a part, part of the original reason was the way that the press covered the civil rights movement they tended to look elsewhere. They blamed it on the South. They blamed America's racial issues and pointed their fingers to the South because it was easier. The Chicago Tribune is a newspaper that was known for highlighting some of the dramatic protests that happened in their city, but not covering it with that same moral clarity that they would when they looked to Birmingham or Montgomery or Selma. For example, in Detroit, incredible issues there, police brutality issues. And when police dogs were sicked on protesters, nonviolent protesters in Birmingham, the Detroit Free Press would talk about that or maybe print a photograph of it or of water cannons being sprayed at protesters. Yet 
issues of brutality in their own community were never given the coverage. You had to look to the black press for that. Then, as the histories of the civil rights movement were being written, many of the victories, the, the moments that we can celebrate, were usually a direct you know, correlation to activities in the South, important marches, important speeches, important legislation. And the focus was on the South. Focus was on main charismatic male leaders. It was only, you know, in the 90s and the early 2000s that scholars really began to seek out voices that had been not heard and people who had been overlooked and began to tell stories about struggles in other northern and western cities that that were not as well known. And as they teased those out and wrote more and more about it, a whole genre or or historiography of the movement became better better known and had been stretched out decades earlier and brought up to the present. They looked at people who were local leaders who, you know, conceived of the movement locally, came up with local solutions, used tactics that made sense in a place like Milwaukee or Oakland or Portland or Cleveland. And it wasn't all one long narrative. It was made up of small local actions nationwide. Before we get to specific images and themes and subjects, I'd like to talk about what seems to me like a key decision you made probably pretty early on, and that is foregrounding the names of photographers. As people go through the book, each plate or, or, or image isn't presented first as a place or an event or a date or in relation to a major moment in history. The maker of the photographs name is always featured. I, I, in my memory, you know, we don't always see Charles Moore's name anywhere near, say, his photographs of the South. Why and how did you come to decide that foregrounding the makers of these pictures was, was important? Well, it wasn't an easy decision, but what I had learned is when you know the photographer's story, it helps you understand their perspective. It helps you understand the direction they were working, what type of photographer they were. And sometimes we just frankly don't know. You know, there's not enough time or research trip money in the world to go track down who a particular AP photographer was or a UPI photographer. But when I did know, I wanted it to be included. I wanted it to be central because some of the photographers were very deliberate about their, their activism or they were employed or they volunteered with a group like the NAACP or CORE or SNCC, the Student Nonviolent Coordinating Committee. And I think that that's an important perspective. They were using photography to tell a story, to create change, to make actions dramatic, to make a statement. Were there any particular photographers who you came to know through this project who you think deserve more intensive and sustained examination? That's a great question. There are always people who I want to learn more about and who I want to help others learn more about. Bob Edelman, who passed away this past year, had started out with CORE in New York and really grew into a, an iconic photographer, shot both north and south. He probably supplied me with the most photographs to look through, probably 2,000 different files 
And to boil that down to, you know, five to seven images was pure agony. Gordon Parks is, of course, really well known. Charles Teeny Harris, a photographer in Pittsburgh, always deserves to be discovered fresh every time. There were other photographers that I, I had never heard of before and people who shared their work with me or other photographers who are known for other things, such as writing books and their, their, their writing, like Julius Lester. He provided a lot of great photographs to consider. The book lives mostly within its era, within in the peak of the civil rights era. But to drive home the relevance of these images have now, you did something interesting and, um, and honestly kind of horrific on page 16, where you put two pictures together. Do you remember what you did there? And maybe could you describe how you came to decide to do that it's just we'll have in, we'll have this in images of, of both of these pictures on manpodcast.com but you know developing north of dixie was a pretty intense project and it spread out of course over years the most recent years with dramatic protests police shootings and dissent made it all the more relevant and powerful and as i was searching for images both in the past and in the more recent past, I kept coming across these sort of symbols and signs that resonated with me more powerfully as history was unfolding. When the Ferguson shootings and protests happened, the hands up gesture suddenly came into parlance and it took on a life of its own. And while I was working on North of Dixie, I came across a photograph from Newark taken by Don Hogan Charles, the first African-American staff photographer for the New York Times. And I saw this young boy coming at me, coming at the lens, being followed by a group of National Guardsmen with their rifles pointed out, bayonets exposed, clearing the sidewalk. And I just had to know what was happening there, how that ended. But the hands-up gesture and the young boy struck me. And there were a couple of photographs that were year-end 2014 photographs in the New York Times, Best Photos of the Year by Whitney Curtis that showed a similar view of a boy, a young man in Ferguson. And it was hauntingly familiar when I saw it. And I just knew I wanted to juxtapose those next to each other. Yeah, it's a really striking page. Do you have a favorite example or two of, of, of parts of history that you think are, are illustrated by the pictures that we might not know or understand from mere textual history? One of the concepts that hit me that I wanted to explore a little bit in the book, and though 100 photographs sounds like a lot, when it comes down to it, it really isn't. You can only say so much with that. And one of the chapters I wanted to look at the concept of black power and use photographs to expand people's vision of what black power meant, what the Black Panthers did in their communities. When I hear the words black power, often I think of raised fists and sunglasses and Oakland um, black power rallies. But I don't necessarily first think about people handing out free lunches or warm breakfasts. As the Black Panther Party did. Exactly. 
And I think that those photographs, the photograph of the young boy smiling in Toledo, the photograph by Stephen Shames, uh, as he gets a, a new warm coat, is just incredible. I think that that type of youth, that type of symbolism, is so much more inspiring than just seeing a little bit of male bravado or guns. So the, power, the, the photographs took on new meaning to me as I could spread them out nationally. I could show the influence of the Black Panther Party nationwide, show men, women, children, and the impact that the Panthers had. And I think that's an important thing here, here as we look back 50 years later, that many of the issues that they were pointing out in their 10-point plan are things that we're still struggling with, still working towards. One of the great things about the book is it really includes lots of pictures of, of women and, and, and the role and roles women played in the 60s and 70s. I don't think that the traditional Southern civil rights photographs, at least that I can think of, make women as central a part of the story as this book does. My favorite, and maybe my favorite picture in the whole book, um, is a photograph taken by, and I hope I'm pronouncing this name right, Declan Hahn in Chicago in 1966. What, what is that? What, what, what are the circumstances behind that picture? The photograph from Chicago in 1966 were buried in his files at the Chicago Historical Society. And when I turned to it, it had little information about where the march was other than Chicago or who was marching. But my understanding is that it was the open housing, the fair housing marches led by Dr. King. But when I looked at that photo, it was so powerful, so affirmative. The, the fist is, is raised and clenched, the hoop earrings, the woman's afro. It was very affirmative. And a lot of the photographs of the civil rights era are not necessarily that. Typically, you see police dogs snarling and, and biting African-Americans. You see police violence. You see mobs attacking blacks. They're not images of agency. They're images of brutalization, victimization. They're not always necessarily empowering. And this particular photograph really spoke to me because of her show of pride. One of the things that really kind of, I guess, surprised me about the book was how many pictures there are of people holding signs and placards, signs of signs with very specific messages. Were you kind of drawn to those pictures, or is that kind of reflective of what you found in archives, that there were, there were a lot of marches of, and, and a lot of events at which people were holding these signs up for the cameras? You know, it's a, it's a funny question. I struggled with many... You know, many of the first two dozen photographs include signs. But what I came to realize was outside of the South, you needed to march into a Chicago neighborhood to call attention to housing discrimination, to redlining, and issues such as that, because you couldn't visualize them. Down South, you could take a picture of a whites-only sign or a drinking fountain, and the issue was very clear. You could take a picture of a line of individuals outside of a courthouse because they couldn't you know, get in for more than a half hour to vote. And that dramatized the issues. Up north, it was much more challenging. So you needed to hold a sign that said, fight for freedom in Detroit. You needed to hold a sign 
that said, you know, don't shop at this location if they won't hire blacks. It's unfair. The story in San Francisco, yellow cabs hiring policy disgraces the city by the Golden Gate. Hiring discrimination wasn't a very easy thing to visualize or dramatize. So you needed to carry a sign. So it was common and it was the number of signs in photos and archives was represented the, the need to make those issues visible outside of the South. That San Francisco photo from 1955 by Cox Studio is, is really terrific. We'll, we'll get an image of that too. It's basically an essay on a series of signs. It's, Absolutely. Uh, it's a really great picture. So I found that at the Library of Congress and the Library of Congress has the NAACP's photograph and visual image collections sort of digitized for quick, you know, uh, viewing. And so I'm cranking through on a microfilm, microfiche reader, which is not the way to look at photography, right? But when I saw that one, it just, it looked like a great composition. People were well-dressed. It was, it looked like it was going to be a good photo, but I really had no idea how good it was until I saw it digitized. I mean, I selected it to be in the book before I had seen the final, final image on a bit of a, you know, a lark there. And when I saw it, I was just blown away. And then what I've really liked is, you know, a lot of websites are running that photo really, really large. And so I've been able to examine it so much more. And it took me a while to realize, the, you know, the women are wearing white gloves and holding those protest signs. Pretty stunning. They're really dressed respectably in their, in their Sunday best. They're, you know, they're saying, we are respectable. We deserve more respect than this. We, you know, we deserve to be hired. And I think also trying to understand the history of some of these photos is incredibly challenging. When you just are handed a photo or when you just work in an archive and discover a photograph, you know, pulling together the background can be incredibly challenging. In this particular case, I found that the image ran in Jet Magazine. And so I was able to read online what the story was and, and, and uh, how the group was able to combat this this form of discrimination. That was going to be my last question. What types of archives did you mine, and where do you think are, or what do you think are some of the um, archives and sources that historians should be focusing um, future attention on? Well, one of the biggest problems for me was very few museums with incredible civil rights photography collections have very many photos from beyond the South because the images that have told the story have traditionally been iconic images taken in the Deep South. So very few places had the materials I needed readily available. I had to go to the Library of Congress to work through those photograph collections. I worked with the Gettys collection of Charles Britton, which allowed me a, a real in-depth view of a Western state and an uh, activist photographer there in L.A. Just fantastic uh, insights. I also then went to the Chicago History Museum. I worked with the Schomburg Online with their, with their curators, another incredible collection that, that you need to tap into. But then there were small historical societies, small art museums, private individuals, private collectors, private photographers. There's a photographer from California, 
active in a group called NVAC, the Nonviolent Action Committee. And he sent me a handful of photographs that were incredibly average, but also incredibly powerful. And I had a little bit of pushback about including one in the book because it was kind of blurry and kind of an active image, if you will. But my point was that this activist photographer carried a little brownie camera and took photographs as a, as a second, you know, as a side thought, really. He used the camera to create a more dramatic presentation. When they would make leaflets, they would include a photograph. And it was his way of building upon what groups like SNCC were doing and CORE were doing. This was a little ragtag bunch in L.A. that was challenging hiring discrimination by little guerrilla tactics that would upset grocery stores. You know, they would fill up their grocery carts with all the bakery products by a company that discriminates and won't hire blacks and Puerto Ricans. But they would take all of the stuff off the shelves, fill the carts, and wheel them up to the checkout line while singing freedom songs and throwing brochures around. And it called attention to the issue. His photograph of that moment, Bruce Hartford's photograph of that moment, captures that guerrilla tactic. Marvelous. We'll, we'll, we'll have an image of that. It's a, it's, a, it's a Bruce Hartford picture. Mark Speltz, thanks so much. Thank you for having me. That's all for this week's show. The Modern Art Notes podcast is edited by Wilson Butterworth. Special thanks to Steve Roden, who created the sound for the program. The Modern Art Notes podcast is released under a Creative Commons license. Please visit Modern Art Notes for more information. Thanks for listening.